have a Bible, let's go ahead and turn to the book of John chapter 10. John chapter number 10. And I want to preach to you this morning on this topic, the grand purpose of Christ's coming. The grand purpose of Christ's coming. Uh, another way you could write that down is the grand promise in Christ's coming. Well, either title would probably fit what we're going to talk about today. But uh, I put on the PowerPoint the grand purpose, but I was thinking about it as I was uh, sitting down there. We could, we could also call it the grand promise in Christ's coming. Either one would fit. So uh, I want to start off by asking this question and then kind of, and kind of expounding on that. Uh, why did Jesus come into this world? Um, why did he come to be amongst sinners? I think there could hardly be a more important question than that. And, and Jesus spoke of this quite frequently, including some of his most memorable sayings in the Gospels are why he came and, and for what reason and for what purpose. Uh, for instance, when Peter and the disciples in Mark chapter 1, when they wanted Jesus to impress people with his miraculous power and, he want, and they wanted him to impress people with everything that he could do, he responded to them in this way. He said, uh, let's go on to the next town that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. That is why I came out. Jesus came to reveal God and to preach the gospel to the world. He came to, he came to proclaim the truth of God. That was the very first message that Jesus preached in, in, excuse me, in Mark chapter 1, that, uh, that to repent and to believe the gospel. He came to reveal God. But if we limit Jesus' mission merely to teaching, uh, I believe we fail to realize that that, that, that was just the beginning. Uh, as Jesus drew near to the, to the end of his time here on earth, he spoke further about the reason for his coming. In Luke chapter 19, he said this, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. And then in Matthew 20, 28, he emphasized this. He said, even as the Son of Man came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve, but, and to give his life as a ransom for many. But I believe probably the greatest statement, one of my favorite statements for the reason of Jesus coming into the world is, what, is the one that's found in John chapter 10, verse 10, as the conclusion of his claim to be the door to salvation. So if we would, let's stand together as we read two verses of Scripture in John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verses 9 and, verses, and verse 10. Uh, Jesus was saying here, John chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, he said, I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes to only to steal, kill, and destroy. And here's where, where we're going to be really looking at today. Jesus says, I came that they may have a life and have it abundantly. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to stand here before your people and deliver your word, Lord. May you be glorified through the preaching of your word, Lord, and may... Now may I decrease and may you increase, Lord, and may we hear in our hearts what you had to say to us in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. The grand purpose in Jesus' coming, or the grand promise in Jesus' coming. And that grand purpose was this, it was to give eternal life. 
It was to give abundant, eternal life. The life that Jesus came and that He proclaimed. The life for which He gave His own life on the cross. That was the life that He came to give. Well, let's, let's do something. Let's look at a little background for what He's saying here. Uh, let's, let's, look, let's look back at what, uh, what, what brings Him to this point. What we need to remember is that Jesus spoke these words in the midst of a dispute with Pharisees. In John chapter 9, Jesus healed the man that was born blind, but the Pharisees immediately afflicted this man and even cast him out of the synagogue. And so everything that Jesus says about himself in John 10 is intended to contrast with the attitude of the Pharisees and the other false religious leaders. And so this is what accounts for what Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10. He said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Steal, kill, and destroy. And uh, these, this was Jesus' assessment, not of, not of the Pharisees, but of all of the false religious leaders, all of those who preach a way of salvation that's anything other than Jesus Christ alone, any of those who preach a salvation based on works or performance or paying money, anything other than Jesus Christ alone, or as the Bible says, wolves among sheep. Now, the Pharisees, they were admired in their day, uh, but their attitude toward Jesus and his followers showed um, their, their workings of their heart. It showed the, the evil that was lying within. And today what you have is a, is a lot of false religious leaders um, which, that, preach, um, that, that preach messages that we should tolerate sin, uh, but uh, that, that we shouldn't tolerate those who are trying to follow the Bible's teaching. Um, those who minister for personal gain and twist the gospel to uh, attract followers. Jesus, by his death on the cross, is the one and only door to life. And that's the message that you and I must preach. That's the message that you and I must continue proclaiming. That's the, that is the only message that brings life. And faith alone, by the way, is the only way of entering into Christ. By God's grace alone, through faith alone. Um, any others who are uh, who would try, and Jesus is saying this. Any other who would try to enter in any other way, or those who would like to try to lead others in any other way, whether climbing over the gate or around the door, Jesus says they're thieves and they're robbers. They steal, they kill, and they destroy. But he says, "I come. I came." that they may have life. I came that they may have life, that they may have it abundantly. And that was why God's Son came, so that you and I could have life, so that you and I can have eternal life. It was the tree of life that Adam and Eve lost when they fell into sin, and that only the Savior from heaven is going to be able to deliver us from the death that was brought on to us by, by the sins of Adam and Eve. It was only the Savior that's going to restore us to this true and eternal life that God, that God created in the beginning. And so when it comes to eternal life, we, tend, we have a tendency to think of, uh, to think of it in quantity. But uh, this is eternal life. It's everlasting life. It's more than just quantity. It's quality. He says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And throughout John 10, he paints a picture of what this plentiful life gives. And he uses the illustration of being the good shepherd in verse 11. You see it there. 
Verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. He, he says that his flock is going to come into him for safety and uh, they're going to go out for rich provision and pastures that are prepared by God all under the, all under the eye of the Savior. And so when we picture this and uh, those familiar with the Bible, when we think about this, we automatically want to think it back to Psalm 23 where the Lord says, where, the, where David says, the Lord is my shepherd. It's a beautiful imagery there. The Lord is my shepherd. And what it does is it describes the life of, uh, uh, that's provided to those who trust in the Lord as their shepherd. Uh, there was a man, a, a pastor, it was a former shepherd turned pastor who wrote, a, who wrote some really valuable insights into shepherding and shepherding as, as Jesus described it. And he points out this in one of his books. He, Philip Keller, he says, the welfare of any flock is entirely dependent upon the management afforded them by their owner, by their shepherd. For him, there is no greater reward, no deeper satisfaction than of seeing than that of seeing his sheep well contented, well fed, safe, flourishing under his care. He will go to no end of trouble and labor to supply them with the finest grazing, the richest pastures, ample winter feeding, clean water. From early dawn until late at night, is this utterly selfless shepherd is alert to the welfare of his flock. And so based on that analogy, when Jesus says that he came to give abundant life, this involves, the, this involves Jesus caring for his people, meeting the needs of his sheep, uh, the, the, uh, giving his time, his energy, his life for the sheep. And because of this care, this is what should drive you and me, uh, those of us who belong to Jesus, to desire and want to say that the Lord is my shepherd. There's nothing else that I want. There's nothing else that I need. But it raises a question. It raises this question. So with this, what I want you to do is I want you to hold your place in John chapter 10. And I want you to turn back to Psalm 23 with me. Hold your place in John 10 and, and turn back with me to Psalm 23. When Psalm 23 says, I shall not want, it brings forward the question, what kind of provision is promised? What kind of provision is promised? What is the Lord promising to his people? I think it's an important question because... There's a spread of so many false gospels, especially the spread of, of, of the prosperity gospel that, teach, that God promises and guarantees material wealth to all those who trust in it. And so what we need to realize, first of all, is that when, when we ask this question, what kind of provision is promised by God? That it's not a promise of earthly prosperity. It's not a promise of earthly prosperity. Uh, the prosperity gospel is one of the most popular and influential forms of false Christianity in the world today. And the prosperity teachers, they often point out that many people feel downtrodden and hopeless and are inhibited by, by poor self-esteem. And they point out that Christians shouldn't approach life pessimistically or doubtful of God's favor. And in that way, they're right. You and I shouldn't live lives that are bitter and pessimistic. You and I, because we have Christ, should have joy in our hearts. We should have joy in our lives. We should have joy that, we, that there's a hope yet to come. We should be joyful in that. That Christ provides. And so in that, there's, there's, there's some correct thinking in there. 
And then they, and when they emphasize that changes in our life demands changes in our mind, changes in our thinking, changes in our heart, they're also right. But here's the great concern. What makes the prosperity gospel a house of cards is this reluctance to speak about the tragedy of sin and the need to find God's grace. Saying this, that, that, that sin, is dep- sin is a depressing topic. And telling people that they need to confess their sins and that they're guilty of sin that they're, and that their sins bring in a, are offensive to a holy and righteous God and that they need to seek forgiveness that injures self-esteem. That's what prosperity gospel teaches. And so what they do instead of, instead of emphasizing sin and the need of a Savior, it's, they, they, they promise that by the sheer power of believing and speaking it into existence, which is the law of attraction, by the way, it's a, it's a charismatic idea that if you believe something and speak it out loud, then whatever you speak will come into existence. Uh, this, is, this is taught uh, really, uh, uh, it became mainline with the book called The Shack by William Young, if you've ever read that. If you believe it and if you speak it, then it's going to become reality, and which is far from what the Bible teaches, as though our, our, faith, is exerc- our faith exercised divine power on its own. This is not what the Bible teaches. One doesn't receive God's favor merely by believing or declaring it to be so. Uh, Only sinners who come to God by the blood of Jesus Christ are the ones who are going to be saved. And only they can rely on God's blessing in his life and the life to come. And so to teach otherwise is to deceive those that are unredeemed with some kind of false hope of God's favor. Well, Pastor Billy, what what about their claim that God wants his children to enjoy Wealth and health and success. Is this biblical? The answer is no. Not always. What you find, what you typically see is prosperity gospel teachers teaching that trials such as illnesses, the loss of a job, relationship problems, they're all a result of a lack of faith. One such teacher goes by the name of Bill Johnson. And uh uh, he he he's you can find it on YouTube that he would teach that uh, your personal uh, physical illnesses are are a result of a lack of faith that your physical ailments are a result of a lack of faith and saying this all while wearing glasses. <laughs> <laughs> the Bible teaches us something differently, something drastically different. The Bible tells us that the trials that you and I face, the, the, the sufferings that you and I face, the illnesses, the tragedies that you and I face, these are all part of God's fatherly plan for growing believers into maturity. As the Apostle James taught, count it all joy, brothers. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, produces endurance. It's disturbing, moreover. It's disturbing to see that people would equate, people would preach a message that would equate salvation almost exclusively in terms of houses and possessions and, uh, and, 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 material, and material things. Jesus said this in Matthew. He said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth 
where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. And he concluded that by saying this, by, by giving a really stinging rebuke for where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And so what that means is that when, when speaking of earthly prosperity, if our hearts uh, is set on the treasures and the material possessions that we have here on earth, then our hearts are not set on God. You can't have your heart set on both. And if our hearts are, are set on things here and not on God, it brings into question our eternal salvation. Jesus called his disciples to self-denial, not self-absorption. Jesus called his disciples to deny themselves. If anyone would come after me, he says in Luke, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And let me say this. Let me, let me stop there and say this. Having possessions is not a sin. Okay? Let me be very clear on that. Having possessions is not a sin. Having a nice house, having a nice car, having, having, having a nice retirement, is no, none of those things are sinful. But here's the test. What if they all came crashing down and they were all taken away? What if the banks crashed and you lost every bit that was in the checking and savings? What if your retirement crashed and you lost it all? What if a tragedy came through and you lost your house and, your, and, and everything? What if all that happened? It's the grand question. Where is your heart? Where is our heart? And man, that would be tough. It would be difficult. A lot of people would, would contemplate suicide. During the Great Depression, the suicide rate uh, raised nearly 25% in the matter of a year. What if, what, what if we lost it all? Now, this was one of the points of the book of Job. Satan argued that Job trusted God only because, uh, only because of the prosperity, the earthly prosperity that Job had, and Job had a massive amount of it. But when, but when Job continued to praise God in the midst of all the suffering, it was God who was glorified because Job realized, and what we need to realize is that the Lord gives, as Job says, and the Lord takes away. And so we need to realize that our true wealth is that, is that mine and your joy does not, does not depend on earthly prosperity. Mine and your joy depends on what Jesus did and what Jesus promised. Amen. And that those, uh, and let me, let me continue. Those who are blessed with material possessions should not feel guilty about it. Do not feel guilty about the Lord blessing you, ever. Just so long as your treasure is in heaven. By the way, the stewardship of wealth is a high calling and a difficult one. It is a high calling and it is a difficult one. And those with uh, and and those and those who have that and give are often a massive help to the cause of the gospel. That's not simple, and it's and it's a high calling to have that kind of blessing. And because not everyone can handle that, some people, the Lord knows. You're better off being poor because you trust in me, because you wouldn't trust in me at all if you were rich. Sometimes I wonder if the Lord thinks that of me too. <laughs> Billy, you're better off trusting in me having, having little than if you were to have much. 
And I say that in jest, but that's probably true for more, for more than just me. Like if we were to have, if some of us were to have a lot, our trust in the Lord would be right out the door. Because we would be so tempted and we'll be ensnared by the, uh, the, the, the possessions that we have. But they're a blessing, and, and so count them as a blessing. But they can be a snare, and so we have to be careful. Jesus said, blessed are you who are poor. Yours is the kingdom of God. And please remember that Jesus promises to meet the needs of his people, the genuine needs, but not to gratify earthly cravings. Paul said this, my God is going to supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory. He's going to supply. God is going to provide. Don't ever forget that God is going to provide. But it's not a promise of earthly prosperity. Here's what it is, and I've got four things that I want to present to you. Number one is a promise of spiritual nourishment. They're spiritual promises. It's a promise of spiritual nourishment. Every believer can rely on God's promise to provide righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, as Romans tells us. In fact, God especially delights to cause us to prosper spiritually in the midst of all the difficulties that we have on earth. Jesus supplies us, as he said, with abundant life, abundant spiritual life in any circumstance so that we can continually, so, so that we can continually praise him and, and worship him. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. That's what that phrase, I shall not want, means. It means I have all that I need. It means I don't have to pursue any worldly happiness. I don't have to, I don't have to go in after all of that because, I, because if I do, I will continue to be restless and I'll always want more. I have the Lord. I have all that I need. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He gives me, this is what this verse is saying, he, he gives me the food that I need. He gives me the water that I need. He gives me the nourishment, the spiritual nourishment that I need. It's a promise of spiritual nourishment. Secondly, it's a promise of spiritual guidance. It's a promise of spiritual guidance. He says, he said, the Lord restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He guides me. He shows me where I need to go. He helps me to get there. And at times he drags me because as a sheep, some, often I don't know where I'm going without the shepherd. Sheep are foolish animals, by the way. Any of y'all have sheep? Any of y'all ever worked with sheep? They are some foolish animals. <laughs> foolish animals. They are not very smart at all. Uh, I was watching a video of a sheep that had gotten stuck in this little uh, ditch that the farmer had dug, a little, uh, just like little culvert ditch. And the, uh, the farmer, you, some of you may have seen this, the farmer pulls the sheep out and the sheep runs around for about 2.5 seconds. He runs and jumps and tries to jump over the ditch and lands right in it again. And uh, to start that all over again. Um, 
another another thing that we often find in, and that you may see working with sheep, where sheep are, sheep can get what's called cast, which means that sheep, when they lie down and they have a li- and they and they they've got their little place in the ground, they start wallowing around to uh, to, to get comfortable. They end up uh, their feet end up coming out from underneath them, and the more they struggle, the more they end up get, getting turned over, and their center of gravity gets shifted, and now their feet can't get there, and they end up lying on their back, and they can't do anything. Most other animals, if they end up laying down, they can twist and contort their way to trying to get back up. But sheep, once they end up in that position, most likely they'll end up dying without help. (coughs) One writer wrote this, sheep are foolish creatures. In fact, they're probably the most foolish animals on earth. And one aspect of their foolishness is seen in the fact that they so easily wander away. We need to realize that the comparison between Christians and sheep is not quite the compliment that we that we want to think it is. It's uh, we, uh, uh, we we like sheep wander and stray. We like uh, sheep like to eat foods that poison them. They like to do things that'll cost them their life. Uh, they require a shepherd to survive. Sheep can uh, sheep, uh, especially domesticated sheep, cannot survive on their own. And the same is true of us spiritually. When Jesus says that He came to give His life for the sheep, this involves ongoing guidance. You and I must continue to follow the Lord, and we must continue to be guided by Him. And that's why He's given us the Bible. The abundant life that Jesus gives is the one that's lived under the guidance of God's Word, that's lived under the spiritual direction that God's Word gives us. Your Word, Jesus, the Bible says, is a lamp to my feet. It's a light for my path. We must hide it in our hearts that we might not sin against the Lord. And he provides guidance by this word, and he provides mentors and leaders for us to help us and guide us along the way. And when needed, he's he's willing to extend that staff and pull us back in. And how often he needs to, amen? He promises life-giving guidance, spiritual guidance. There's another promise not just of nourishment and guidance, but also, in addition to that, a promise of spiritual comfort. A promise of spiritual comfort. Jesus promises abundant life, but but you and I still live in a world that's shadowed by death. We live in a culture that is marked by a a mindset of death. And so Psalm 23, verse 4, therefore says this, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. This shadow of death, it deprives so many of us the joy of, so many people, the joy of of life and the joy of life that Jesus gives. But it should not be so for Christians who know the Lord's promise and who know the Lord Jesus. You and I face death, but we shouldn't fear it. We face this tragedy, but we shouldn't fear it. We should face it with joy. Why? Because the Lord promises to be with us. He promises that he's going to be there every step of the way and that his sin atoning death on the cross removed everything that you and I have to fear in in death. It removed it all. Some time ago, I had the privilege of ministering to a brother who was facing death and death was approaching pretty rapidly. And our last meeting together, we both, he and I both knew that he was that he was going to pass uh, uh, within just a couple of days. 
And I, and Psalm 23 was what the Lord had, had guided me to use to help encourage him and to comfort him uh, that in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death that he was facing, um, that's just the middle of the psalm. It's not the end. It's the very middle of it. And, and it tells us that, that death is, is, is not permanent thing. It's just a shadow. Um, it's just a temporary affliction. But still, like many, uh, my friend was worried about the actual experience of dying. And he asked me, um, Pastor, what's it going to be like uh, to die? And uh, we both joked around with each other, and I said, I don't know. I haven't done it yet. Um, and he, we, we, we both laughed. But I said, in all honesty, I, I, I didn't, I don't know. I, I do know this, though. That the Lord's promised to be with us through that entire process. The Lord's promised to be with us through it all. And to remove any harm from that experience, for you are with me, David says. You're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That's so interesting to see that. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You know, the, 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 the shepherd's crook on the shepherd's staff is to, is to uh, pull the sheep back in. And the rod is used to drive away the enemy and those who would, those who would be a threat to the sheep. And uh, it's, it's a weapon as well as a... Uh, as well as an instrument of care and, uh, and of, uh, of guarding. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And even more, uh, Christians have every reason to look forward to the life that awaits us beyond the grave. We have every reason to look forward to the life that awaits us beyond well, what this life is. Heaven is where full and unfettered prosperity uh, truly awaits, where Jesus says moth and rust can't destroy, where the thief can't steal, where time can't take away, where Satan can't take anything away. Heaven is going to be a place where Christians truly understand what true prosperity is. And there are three, there are three, three promises in that. Look at verse five of Psalm 23. He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You prepare a table before me. And despite all the accusations of sin and the devil against you and me, of look at you, you're not a good Christian. Look at you sinning. Look at you falling. Look at you doing all this. You're not very good. What makes you think you're going to earn God's favor? I didn't earn it. Jesus did. And I trust in him. And he provides. And that's our answer. And despite all those accusations, we can know that a place has been prepared for each of us in Christ when we come into the presence of God. Jesus said, in my Father's house are many rooms and I go to prepare a place for you. And secondly, not just to prepare, not just to prepare a table before me. He secondly says, "You anoint my head with oil. You anoint my head with oil." Now, ancient hosts, what they did was that they would provide um, oil and they would provide wine to a, a weary traveler. Uh, the oil was to soothe the skin, and the wine was to cleanse a uh, dirty and dusty throat. 
And so for that reason, a, a shining face, uh, a face that was rubbed with oil, was a face of, was the face of a friend. In Psalm 104.15, uh, David writes this. He says, he gives thanks to God for wine to gladden the heart of man and oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen a man's heart. And so we have a vision of Jesus welcoming us into heaven with oil to soothe the hurts of our passage through life and through death. Jesus is waiting with this to soothe us. He anoints my head with oil. And then he says, my cup overflows. So three promises there. You prepare a table, you anoint my head, and my cup overflows. Whatever we hope for in heaven we know that it's going to be so much more than what we could imagine. It's going to be so much more than what we could, what we could ever dream of. David just says, hey, you didn't just pour my cup full. It overflows. This is more than I could ever imagine. This is more than I could ever think of, more than I could ever dream of. This is so much better than anything I've had. And David, by the way, was a king when he wrote this. He had all the prosperity. He had everything that you could possibly ask for on this earth. And he looks at what, what's waiting for him in heaven, and he says, my cup overflows. This isn't just enough. This is more than I could ever imagine. And so what a comfort it is for you and me living in a world like this, living in the situations in which we do, living with the struggles that we do, to know that overflowing glory awaits us in heaven because the Lord is going to be there. And so there's there's the promise of nourishment. There's the promise of guidance. There's the promise of comfort. And lastly, there's the promise of spiritual life. The promise of spiritual life. And Jesus didn't come to give us money or possessions or positions of power or prestige. He came to give us life. And this life is found in fellowship with him. It was found in, it's found by having a relationship with Jesus Christ. John chapter 1 tells us that in Jesus is life. And that life is the light of men. And so David concludes Psalm 23 by saying this. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Life is promised. Life is promised. Eternal life is promised. And that's where we come back to John chapter 10. How many of you actually still have your place there? How many of you are like, okay, now I got to actually flip back and find this again. <laughs> Not one. You're all good, good, good listeners, and you held your place. Good. Jesus came as a life-giving Savior. He says, I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will, he will be saved, and he will go in and out and find pasture. So can you and I this morning say of Jesus that the Lord is my shepherd? And if not, what could possibly keep you and me from coming to him for this, for this care and this provision? Can you say the Lord is my shepherd? If not, why? Is it, is it a love of sin? Is it a love of worldly possessions? Is it, is it something that's, what is stopping you from coming to the Lord? Jesus died to free us from that. 
to free us from that bondage, from, to free us from that false advertising that he gives. His cross is the gate to the, 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 the sheep's pen, so to speak, that, so that there you, you, and, you and I might confess our sins and, uh, and be guarded and be comforted and have the burden of our guilt drop from our backs and be received into the fold. The cross is the gate. And if you've done that, you can say with full confidence, yes, I'm part of that flock. The Lord is my shepherd. Can you say that this morning? And if you can, then surely our faith must be refreshed by when we think of him, when we read of what he's done, when we pray. Surely our faith is refreshed. Maybe you say you can. You can say that the Lord is my shepherd, but this life has thrown everything at you lately, and it has been a struggle. And I know the Lord is my shepherd, but I need to refresh my faith. I need to renew uh, my vow of love for him. I need to uh, receive a new strength because I have just wondered so far. Can I say this? That the Lord is my shepherd. That's what we say by faith. And if we can say that by faith, then Jesus responds with this blessing. I came that they may have life and that they may have it abundantly.